introducing Minor Wisdom Quintet. This week I have Jessica Farron on. She is at the University of Houston over the summer master's program for educators. And Jessica and I had never really like fully met. We are Facebook friends and so I keep up with her. She keeps up with me. And it was just something that needed to happen because we never really talked or caught up or gotten to know each other. So this was a great way for the two of us. If, if you guys don't enjoy this conversation, at least we did. And, and caught up and got to know each other a lot better than what we already knew. So that was fun. I do have to apologize. I am a lighting guy. So uh, although when we did this Zoom call, the visual was great because I was lit well and everything behind me was lit well, the sound quality uh, on my part, her sound is actually phenomenal. But my sound, I was clipping a little bit and I was probably too close to the mic and... I apologize. So for those of you listening in your headphones, you know, you might have to do a little ride in the dial if you know what I'm saying. So just beware of that and my apologies up front. We found out this past week in my district that we will be returning at a certain date and students will return soon after that, either face to face or they will continue to be online. It's kind of a fun little situation. Our district is taking things slower than other districts, although the parents in some areas of our district would tell you, let's hurry things up, and maybe tomorrow we start with school. And teachers are like, but tomorrow's Labor Day. Anyway, but it is quite the mess, and no answer is the correct answer. As my superintendent said, if this was easy to figure out, everybody would have already figured it out, and that's very true. But some parents don't see past their rose-colored glasses and their assumption that everything is the way it should be and the way that they want it to be and that students will be protected and great and awesome and that it just happens overnight with just the either snap of a finger or maybe if you're a bewitched fan you twiddle your nose or whatever it is that she did to make things happen instantly and that's just not the case. So I hope people are more patient, at least in my district, and if you're in a district that's struggling as well, to kind of figure out where you are and what you should be doing, then hopefully they're preaching patience and not rushing into things because that is the right way to go. That's just like life lesson, right? Life lesson 101, baby. The other portion of this that I wanted to talk about from the interview actually is that I'm starting a new thing where I'm going to ask the interviewee if they have a recommendation on who I should be interviewing next. And I'm never going, well, no, I'll, I will tell you if that's the person the following week, if that is the person. So at the end here, you're going to hear me, I kind of chop things up because I did ask Jessica who she thought, and I'm not going to reveal who those people were or person or uh, anything about what she said, except for a little snippets where I kind of take a dig at Stuart Savage, but that's just kind of a theme on this podcast now. So uh, I, it does kind of end in a weird way, and I apologize to Jessica, but it's just kind of my way of masking things, keeping the suspicion alive. So that is what the end of this is. Really, I should have ended this after Jessica discussed a script that she is very influenced by and that she found meeting in. Uh, but then we went off on talking about a book that she had a discussion about because one of the authors is an assistant professor at the University of Houston. Anyway, you guys will hear. It was a really fun conversation. I'm very happy that I got to know her. Also because there's you know always that chance that I try again going back to the University of Houston and trying the master's program at some point. So uh, why not get to know people? It's called networking, folks. Enjoy this interview with Jessica Farron. A little bit about my background. I was born in upstate New York, but dad was part of the diplomatic corps. So we moved to Hong Kong when I was five. And then we moved to Burma, which has since been renamed Myanmar. Um, and then we lived in Bolivia, lived in Virginia for a little while. We lived in Thailand, so kind of 
all over Southeast Asia, South America, lots of travels and growing up in different cultures, things like that. And then for college, I went to North Carolina School of the Arts, got my BFA in acting from there. And then to, you know, the Big Apple where we pounded pavement and, you know, worked nights so we could audition during the days and got our hustle on and um, was lucky enough to, um, one of my professors told me like really, first of all, that she said, go in second act every show you can. So we used to go and smoke, everybody would leave for intermission and come out and be smoking a cigarette. And if you were dressed up and you were smoking a cigarette, they didn't check your tickets to get back in for the second act. So I second acted a lot of shows. Um, and then I basically went to Bernard Telsey casting and I, and I begged to be a reader for them. And I would bring donuts and muffins for the the ladies in the front and I finally got a reading job there and then eventually they called me in for Summer and Smoke with um, Mary McDonald, Harry Hamlin at the Roundabout Theater and I got an understudy role in that, got to go on in that role which was a thrill and then I did a Lyle Kessler's play called Robbers at the American Place Theater so that was really fun. My agents wanted me to try LA and I was like, I am not a film movie. Like that's not my training, but eventually went out there and, and managed to book work. Um, and most of it is quite painful to, <laughs> it's cringeworthy to watch back. But, um, but it was really cool experiences. I grew a lot in that time. Um, just learning about that element of the business and yeah, that was great. So, um, you know, did some, some weird movies with some crazy people and, and, um, was on a soap opera for a little while and wound up doing a recurring thing on NYPD blue, which was fun. So it was, it was good, but, uh, not not it wasn't my area you know what I mean so I felt like a fish out of water doing all of that and then um eventually settled down sort of got married um and when I was pregnant my husband became super ill and so uh he died shortly after my son was born and that kind of threw everything into like whoa reorganization of the game plan here let's figure out what we're going to do so we moved to texas to be closer to family and um and i started teaching at the local high school and i fell totally in love with it it was you know happenstance um but a great thing so and then got my MA at University of Houston with Jackie de Montmollen at the head of that program. And um, upon graduating, she was leaving and um, some people reached out to me and I thought I'm no one would take over for her. Like you'd have to be out of your mind. So no, thank you. <laughs> But persuasive people and working with great people and a program, obviously, that I believe in so fully. Um, so here I am a few years later, still at it. We even made it happen during a pandemic. Yeah, so. yeah you did. <laughs> I'm hopeful. Yeah, I know some people in the in the program currently, and I know some people that were in it back when you were in it. So right. uh so a few things, uh, you, you said quite a bit there that, that made me think of quite a few questions. The first one I'm going to ask that's going to lighten the mood. Do you still keep in touch with any of those LA, uh, actors and such? Is any, any big name people that you could, that are sitting in your phone right now? <laughs> uh, I might have a couple. I, I will say, I don't, I don't keep in touch probably yeah. with uh, many of them. Sometimes in weird ways circles pass sure. and we'll kind of reach out to each other and that's kind of cool to be like oh my gosh they remember me yeah. that's so nice but um but i would say probably i got to work with some incredible people yeah. but the that was a that huge show nypd blue was 
NYPD mm-hmm. Blue was a very popular show when it was on. I mean, it was yeah. it was a huge deal. So I remember yeah. that. Um, yeah. My mom was a huge fan of it. So, uh, but yeah, that's kind of cool. I I'll have to go. Ba- we'll have to go back and 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 watch and see <laughs> if we can spot you. Uh, the like where's Waldo oh, of, of for so Jessica good. yeah <laughs> uh, that's fun what what do you think it was about or or maybe you know the answer maybe you don't have to think you know the answer what do you think it was that your agent your east coast agent was saying you should go to the west coast what was it that they thought you had that you didn't know you had or think you had you know what's really funny is my east coast agent I think wanted to send me out to LA thinking it was a financially more viable opportunity. It was kind of, everybody was in this mode of like being bi-coastal and, you know, Hey. Um, So I think it was, I think it was probably more financially driven for them. But as soon as I got away from them, I, I, my sister FaceTiming me, (laughs) keep going. It's the it's like the uh, second new, interview. <laughs> I got a new agent when I was in LA, and here's a funny little story. Yesterday, I was reading an article about Chadwick Boseman, and it was an article written by his agent talking about, "Hey, this is how we we kept it under wraps, and and this is why, you know." And they talked about the fact that he just felt like so many people in the world were going through so much so much more in a way that he, than he was and he didn't want energy expended on him in that way and i'm thinking but you know people could sell that story it's amazing to have a circle like that right and i get to the bottom of the article and it was michael green who was my agent when i was in la uh, and he is a ride or die kind of guy right. but it's also a testament to chadwick because he's a boutique agent he's not caa or you know, William Morris. So he probably signed Chadwick early on in his career and, and, and Chadwick stayed with him, which is also kind of amazing. So, yeah, that is, uh, that whole thing that the Chadwick Boseman thing is. So I was watching something this morning on it about how he kept it quiet and why he kept it quiet and yeah, similar thing and how he still stayed extremely active with, um, uh, the kids, uh, and, what it, what it, uh, the why can't I think of it right now the where they go visit terminally ill children um uh make a wish make a wish thank you make a wish yeah make a wish uh and how he he felt an obligation to do it but he, even though all these kids none of these kids knew that he was going through the same sort of fight that that uh yeah. that they were um yeah interesting that it, it's it he's inspired even he's inspirational even through death you know it's that's that's very rare rare air uh the things that he accomplished in in such a short burst of a life you know yeah yeah incredible and i touched i don't want to keep things down but i do have a we have a very similar um sort of probably a similar story uh and and if you don't mind i'm going to ask you uh one or two things about it but you mentioned that your husband passed away years ago and that kind of swung you into kind of rethinking how, you know, what, what am I going to do? Uh, yeah. and I, I have a similar story, not my husband, but my parents, um, uh, passed away in uh, the same year within just a couple months apart. And it did the same thing to me. So, uh, as far as like just rethinking and it, and it ended up obviously it, it was turning a negative into a positive and saying, I'm not going to just stay here and sulk. I'm going to do something about this and, and, and make sure that, that for at least while I'm around, I'm going to do everything I can to make everyone else very happy. And, um, uh, you know, you with, with a child and just me with at that time, me. (laughs) So, uh, you know, and I mean, catalytic events, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like, so, but it, moments. but what's interesting is it led both of us to education and I want, and that's, that's where I was going with this. I wonder what it was psychologically that said, you know, and I know you mentioned, uh, coming down here to be closer to family, but mm-hmm. you could have, you could have done any, I mean, you could have career wise, you could have done anything, but you and I both 
have similar stories in that we both were like, well, let's go teach. And I wonder what it is about that. Maybe you, you're much smarter than I, so maybe you have more of an eloquent way of, of saying it, but I wonder what it was about education that drew us. I could say my mom was a teacher, but I hated being in school. Like I did not like school. Um, so the fact that I'm in my 11th year and I now have a master's in education, you know, like 15 year, 15 year old me is so mad at me right now. Um, and confused. (laughs) So what do you think it was about you that, that said, give this a shot? I think mine was really like, uh, I went into survival mode, you know, in every possible way. And especially with a, a little person, um, to take care of. So it was kind of like, how can I parlay my skills talents maybe don't want to push it but you know the things that i can do into something um that's survivable and i also want to say when i was younger i dreamed of being a teacher so i would line all my dolls up my mom has pictures of me i would play school every day so it was kind of a little bit of a natural fit but it was forced in the moment to happen and once it happened It was such an epiphany for me because I think as an actor, you live a life that is all about you. You, you, you are your own product. You walk around with giant pictures of yourself with descriptions of all your special skills on the back of it. And you give them to people and you talk about yourself and it's very myopic that way, you know? And then all of a sudden I was thrust into this career that the last thing it was really about was about me. And it was about so many others with so many differing needs. And it was so fulfilling, you know, that head to pillow moment at the end of the day, I felt better than I probably ever had. So that was it. How, was how, how long did you teach uh, in the high school world? Uh, 10 years. Okay. Yeah. So I did, well, let me see, I did two years, almost two years in the junior high world. Okay. And then I think it was seven or eight in the high school. Okay. How'd you do? Where, where were you on the, in the, you know, you weren't raised in the UIL one act play world. <laughs> and so I'm sure that was a little bit of a kind of a shock to you. Oh, such but, a shock. you know, we not only, we, yeah, yeah, not we only, I'm not raised in the UIL world, but I wasn't even raised in the States. So <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> theater for me was like, Getting a friend and putting on a skit in the backyard growing up, you know? So the first time I went to a TETA event, I was like, what is this? All of these people are here for theater? Yeah. In high school and junior high in Texas? Yeah. That can't be. (laughs) No, we did well. I worked at, um, I was at Montgomery High School. And I was with uh, Suzanne Ray when I was there. And so, you know, we had, we did well, we did well. Um, and I, I hate, I don't think that a measurement of doing well at all is about going to state. Like, I don't, I just, I have a very, I don't know if it's popular or an unpopular opinion about no, that. I agree with you. I a hundred percent agree with you. Yeah. I think chasing that is, uh, is not the right MO for anybody to have, yeah. but I have a huge appreciation for it. I'm so thankful we have it in this state because yeah. it's why theater is what it is. But, um, but you know, I don't think that's really the ultimate measurement of success. Right. So we do have students that went on to pursue it. Um, students that went on to pursue completely other things and be really successful in their fields because, you know, they were able to, stand up and and speak and face those fears i think um yeah uh i i i agree with you on the on the one act play front and i've said i mean i've your episode 80 something so i it's no secret when i say it on my podcast that you know how i feel about one act play i've even devoted certain episodes to it and and when i interviewed luis munoz um a year or so ago you know, he did state, of course, we all know why one act play is important, of course, yeah. because it, it, it almost gives us jobs um, in a way yeah. Um, yeah. and stipends. Um, but at the same time, it should be it's like in football, it's it's one of the stats. It's not 
the stat, you know, uh, when you interview for a job and stuff. So, but that's, that's interesting. You know, I, uh, and it, and even with teaching with Suzanne Ray, who has, uh, is a hall of fame career as a theater teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure that was, I'm, I'm, you know, in a, in a mean kind of way, I'm surprised she hired you <laughs> or maybe it's, maybe it's because, maybe it's because you had no experience and she wanted to kind of, uh, groom you into that position and, and kind of teach you her ways. But, um, you know, it was the same with, I taught with Pam Wilson for two years after a year of teaching and she hired me and I'm convinced to this day, she hired me because I knew nothing and that, and in a positive way, I knew nothing. She wanted to help me along. Um, so I think there's something to be said about that, but that's, that's interesting. So what, what is it about, um, this job now, because it was, you know, there was a, a huge kind of, uh, typhoon of, of, of theater gossip when Jackie left and, and in a positive way, it was like, it was exactly what you said. It's like, who's going to, who's going to take over that she's done such a, she's built this program practically from nothing. Um, and, and made it a huge success, a massive success. And now, oh my gosh, who are we going to get? <laughs> and so what kind of pressure did you feel walking in? You've been doing it now for what, two years? It's your, this was your three, second, son, three? Okay. Three, three, pretty much on the nose now. Okay. So three, three years. Um, yeah. And so I'm sure now you feel better, more comfortable in the, in the, in the job. You, know, but... you would think that, but it's been <laughs> just one thing after another. Right. With you know? the, yeah, and it's, true. And it's, and it's a, it's a beast, yeah. you know? Um, and I definitely would not have even considered it if I didn't have her full support. And, you know, she's been an unbelievable mentor to me in so many ways. And she continues to be that to me. So I, you know, when you have really good people in your corner that believe in you, you can get through those moments where you maybe lack a little bit of the confidence in yourself. Um, and not only do they believe in you, but they'll help you, right? So figuring out some of the more complicated yeah. um, bits of the program, certainly she she held my hand through those. Um, and so that that was really helpful. And now I feel like after getting through this summer yeah. and having to convert the entire thing into an online format, kind of at the blink of an eye and, yeah. and just change everything. Now I kind of feel like, okay, there's some, some ownership there. Like, cause there was nobody I could turn to, to help me through that. You know, nobody had done that. We were like, ah, uh. so I kind of, That's maybe, fun. maybe in some ways that was a way of me really getting my, my sea legs under me. Yeah, sure. When did you, um, start thinking, oh my gosh, I have to do this digitally. I have to do this virtually. I was in denial. <laughs> yeah, I think <laughs> I was because you have to understand. I already had all of our tickets for right. New York. We were going to be seeing incredible shows. I yeah. had, I mean, I had them. I have them still. You know, all of my tickets. Yeah, and so I was just. And I, and I just didn't, I didn't see how it could, how it could be. I didn't understand how it could possibly convert. And my big thing was, I'm not going to do it if, if we're going to lessen the value. So we have to look at the areas where, Hey, we're not going to be able to travel this summer and we're not going to be able to have those in-person experiences. Um, and so how are we going to counter that? Right. It, the program had to morph for this past summer. We had to find value in other areas. And one of the things we did is we partnered with the Alley Theater yeah. um, for what we call the offsite portion of our course. And we worked um, tirelessly and they worked tirelessly to really create something um, that had a lot of contact hours and active yeah. investigation and just some really great training. And at the end of it, you know, the feedback from students and everything was, was terrific. Yeah. I've, so, I've heard there are a couple that are in my district that, that I, I know really enjoyed it. You know, we're skeptical. I think everybody was skeptical with not just are. this program, but just everything that they started virtually. Yes. Uh, and then I think most of it turned out 
relatively well, so much so that they're going to be components of all this stuff that we keep for the future that we're like, hey, you know, um, we could maybe do if, if because you don't have to have the alley. Now, mind you, the alley's amazing. But let's right. say next year you're like, well, let's try the Guthrie or something. And you could, Absolutely. you could do it virtually. For us, you so. know, it was, hey, what can we do to support our local artists sure. right, at the yeah. University of Houston? So the alley was a no-brainer and yeah. everybody was going through such a difficult time. Still are, yeah. very much so. Yeah. So anything we can do to kind of keep it local. But our normally scheduled training was with Lincoln Center. Yeah. And they were like, we can still do the training. Um you know, it may be a little bit morphed or whatever, but sure. I thought I we're not going to get the other contact hours with yeah. New York City. So I need to change the training. The training has to be more intensive and right. has to be fuller training. So and it's faces that up and it was it was a great experience. Yeah. They're such a phenomenal organization. I can't say enough about it. Yeah. Them. And it's faces that these people have seen and will see. So, yeah. uh, you know, very, yeah. very readily available to once we get back to quote unquote normal. So, um, do you still try to, I know you, you probably are going to be like, Blake, I don't have time for that. Do you still try to act as much as you can or do any sort of theater just to get your kind of artistic side going? I know you uh, get an artistic, you know, you get fed artistically through the right. summer MA program as well, but. Yeah. And I get to teach the BFA acting okay. students as well which is um, wonderful soul food. And I'm directing right yeah. now, which is awesome. We're working on a, on a MFA playwriting piece. Okay. We're devising it right now. So yeah. that's really cool. And trying to do that in this format, we're, we're really making some awesome discoveries. Yeah. So I feel like artistically, you know, I'm, I'm opening back that door back up to allow more of that in now that I've, I've kind of got a grip on everything, sure. but I definitely miss performing and that's at the top of my list of, yeah, when I, when I officially come up for air and, and, and catch my breath a little bit, I'm, I'm definitely right. going to be pursuing that somehow. Right. Yeah. Good. <laughs> good. Yeah. Cause I, I can't imagine, you know, that was one of the reasons, as you know, um, you know, when I left, when I quit <laughs> at, you know, my school at Dulles, uh, to come pretty much join you guys at the, for right. the, for the full MFA, not the, or I say full MFA that I don't want to make that sound for the year long MFA program. But, um, it was partially because I just, you know, I, I, I need, I still need that artistic fix. Um, and I knew that even though most people, I guess, didn't realize, even though I've got this flag right here in the image, you could see it, but <laughs> I guess most people didn't realize I've already had Kevin Rigdon. I've been there, done that with Kevin. And, uh, but, I, but that was part of the turn on of coming back was yes. I could, you, you can never have too much Kevin Rigdon. So you can never uh, have too no. much Kevin Rigdon. So, <laughs> so I, you know, that was part of my drive was to come, you know, kind of, cause he's, I don't think it's any secret. He's definitely on the down uh, the, the bottom part of his uh, career as far as in education. And so I wanted to soak up as much as I could from that man before he left. And, you know, that's not to say I won't in the future, but um, I get it needing to kind of feed your, your soul uh, yeah. a little bit. Yeah. It's, and I think too often that's something teachers overlook. Yeah. And it's kind of um, become socially, the, I mean, it's just the norm, you yeah. know, most teachers and certainly the good ones are doing this because they are so invested yeah. in their students and administrators and districts and states and people take advantage of that. You know, they know, Hey, you're going to give everything you can, but at the end of the day, you really can't pour from an empty cup. So you have to find ways to keep yourself. Yeah. You do, know, do you guys teach some, I know you don't spend a ton of time on it probably, but do you guys teach kind of self-care and, you know, making sure that like you just said, your cup is at least half full in order yeah. to, to be able to give yeah. back? Yeah. I think it's becoming more and more. So when we kicked face-to-face -face instruction to the curb in March and everything went online Self-care, I think, became at the forefront of everything. And it's funny that you mentioned that because I was going through some of the articles and, you know, different books and theories and uploading everything to our team's account 
for my students right now. And one of the articles that I have, and I won't say the name of it, um, but it was basically like why actors need to train. And the quote at the very top of it said, the only reason you should ever miss a rehearsal or performance is death. And this is something that as theater artists, we've propagated for a really long time. This is, I don't know why, really, that we that we think it's that dire all the time, but it's this whole, the show must go on mentality, and you hear stories of people, I mean, Vanessa Hudgens went on in Greece right after learning that her father died, and we laud that, right? We're like, yay, way to do your thing. And if that works for you, then awesome. But if that doesn't work for you, that's okay too. Yeah, yeah. You need to say, I'm sorry, but my... I just, you know, experienced something really, really big and I've, I've got to step back. Like we have to have a little bit more flexibility and grace yeah. in that way. It's not a lack of professionalism. Our, our job is to explore the human condition and have all this empathy and compassion, but we have none. Yeah. Uh, when we look at things from a professional level, that's weird. Yeah. And I think, I think a lot of what's happening a lot of what's happening in COVID obviously is causing a ton of self-reflection. Yeah. And I think this is one of those miniature places where we're going to start to see some changes because right. you got to stay, you got to be okay. Yeah. <laughs> not, not to make this theme super morbid in this, you know, your interview super morbid, but Am you I bring, well, no, 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 no. I, I'm going to, I'm going to take us there. So, and going back to, to, uh, this is selfish going back to me, but it goes back to this story when, when my mother died in February of 2006 and I was sitting in the UH auditorium, the theater, uh, designing lights, the first show that I had main stage lighting and, uh, I got the call, Hey, you need to come to the hospital. She's not doing well. And I turned to Kevin Rigdon thinking, Oh my God, like I've got, no, I, I got to stay and do this technical rehearsal. I've got to stay. Like I can't, I can't leave right now. And mm -hmm. Kevin knew he could see something was going on. Plus this was back when cell phones were still kind of not so discreet. <laughs> you know, it was like, I'd pull out my cell phone, you know? <laughs> so he knew something was up, right. That I was going to answer the phone in the middle of, of a tech rehearsal. And he, he was, had didn't flinch at the idea, just said, no, yeah. you need to go take care of what you need to take care of. And I did not come back for a couple of weeks. And then fast forward to my next main stage lighting design opportunity in September of the same year. And I get a phone call that my father had passed away. Now I wasn't sitting in tech rehearsal, but it was a tech week. And I said, I was like, Kevin, you like, you're you're probably not going to believe this because, you know, as teachers, we are always like, oh, how many times is your aunt going to pass away? Like, cause you know, kids are like, I'm going to, I have to miss school this week because another aunt and you're like, you can only have so many grandmothers and you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, we joke about that. And as, as bad as that might sound to joke about it, but it's true. It's always been kind of one of those cliche things, but, but I went to Kevin and of course, once again, he said, no, 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 you gotta, you gotta go. Like you gotta go. And Never once did I feel personally, did I feel any pressure to say, you got to go today, but tomorrow I'll see you here for tech rehearsal. No, he, you know, right. this, this Tony nominated, um, brilliant man said, and I, this is turning into a Kevin Rigdon, you know, a, a fawning of Kevin Rigdon for yeah, me, but, <laughs> but you know, it's just, it goes back to that whole, like you said, um, if you need to, uh, sort of take that time if something traumatic happens to you you yeah. need to do it you have to do it don't the pressure should not be there from other people to make the show go on if you if you right. can't you know there's there's always a contingency plan the show will go on but you may not be a part of it and that's okay and you and know? the show may not be as great as if you were but right. the, the show must go on does not mean at the expense of your own personal, mental, right. physical, spiritual well-being. Like that's that's a little crazy, yeah. you know. There are there are certain professions that really have to do that. I right. mean, if you're in the military, yeah. I get it. If you're working a triage unit, I, I get it. Yeah. But that's that's not where we are. And I think it's part of it is the stigma, right, of mental health. I mean, 
why do kids say that their 34th aunt has just passed away right. and they can't make it? What's really going on? And why can't we, why right. can't we get to that? Right. Yep. And I know there's not enough time in the day to dig as deep as we need to. Yeah. Every bit. <laughs> but, you know, as a society, we can do better with this conversation. Yeah. A hundred percent agree. And maybe that'll be something that gets focused on a little more at this, you know, now TXETA or at thespians or something like that. Uh, yeah. The mental health. I know my sister, who's a social worker, just talked about uh, she did a, a, a session at TTEC last year, or I guess this year, but in January about taking take care of yourself. You know, you've got to be able to do that or you're not going to, like you said, not your cup is going to be empty. All right, let's get off of that. Uh, <laughs> the other the other thing that you said at some point is and I, and I don't want to necessarily bring up the the smoking part of things, but you the theme of you saying the second act, get into the second act, right? Uh, it reminded me of my time when I was touring. I used to always say to my friends or family that came to a show or anything, do, they'd say, do I do I need a backstage pass? No, act like you belong. Act like you're supposed to be here. And I guarantee you will rarely ever get stopped by somebody, which is horrible because, <laughs> because, you know, now you're backstage at the Justin Bieber concert and they're like, who in the hell is this? But, um, but it's just funny. It reminded me of those kind of stories yeah. that. I mean, being a starving artist is real yeah. and, and knowing, you know, having the privilege of knowing a lot of, uh, successful artists, they love hearing that kind yeah. of stuff. They love the idea of somebody, you know, it's you're not really breaking a law. I mean, the ushers should be yeah. better. I don't know what to say. You gotta you've, you've gotta figure out a way to get yourself in the room to see what's going on out there. Again, I don't want to make it a huge issue, but you know why are these tickets so darn expensive right. that we can't we can't get the people who love this stuff and lives could be changed by seeing these things. We can't get them in the room. Right. You know, talk about the room where it happens. Right. Come on. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, that's very true about, yeah, the, the, the passionate ones are the ones struggling to, to make ends meet. And, uh, you know, and now you're letting in oil tycoons that are just there to be seen, <laughs> maybe like that. Yeah, right. I get that. Uh, so I've got to ask about education side of things, too. What is it that you miss about a high school kid that you don't necessarily get from some of your college students and the master's students? It's a great question. Um, and it's going to sound like a super cheesy answer, but it's 100% true. Uh, I miss, I miss the kids that I taught theater one for a long time. And if you've taught theater one, you know that you're going to get a couple of classes with students that didn't sign up for that. Absolutely don't want to be there. They didn't sign up for any elective because they don't want to be in it, you know, or whatever. And um, and the the way you have to work <laughs> to get those kids involved. Yeah. I mean, you go to sleep thinking about what can I do. You wake up with them on your mind, yeah. and you're just kind of like chiseling away. Sometimes you're successful. Sometimes you spend an entire year going like, <laughs> oh, you know, but. Um, but there's something about that where you're always just in a state of flux right. and trying to, you know, improv and figure yeah. out a new way. It's awesome teaching at the the college university level because those students are there and they're really devoted and right. dedicated and, and that's that's terrific. And if they're listening, please don't give me a hard time. That's not <laughs> what I'm saying. There's no subliminal messaging here. Um, but, you know, there's something I'm not going to shy away from saying it. I think I think our public education teachers are heroes in the biggest sense of the word, and it's so upsetting and disheartening to see people who don't get it, who haven't yeah. been a part of it, who haven't seen it. I've been in a. I've worked with a lot of teachers now, and I've been in a lot of different schools, and I can tell you. These are dedicated, devoted, passionate people that work harder than anybody on the planet. Right. I mean, it is unreal. So 
there's something about just spending absolutely everything that you've got. And at the end of the day, not even be successful in all ways, but knowing that like you tried your hardest to reach a kid that you right. never gave up on a kid. And then, you know, a couple of years later they come back and they're wearing a military uniform and, or they're carrying a baby and they want to show you and they're so excited. And you're like, really? I, I affected like, <laughs> you. You don't hate me. You didn't go home every day cursing me. Like, that's amazing. Those oh, yeah. things, you know, that's good. Things. So I'm going to flip it now. What is missing when you get a certain college student, what is a what is a very common trait that a college student is missing that you wish maybe they had been taught in the high school or, or you know, any secondary level? Yeah, yeah. I think, so in a general term, what's missing is, if I had to boil it down to something, I'm going to, I'm going to call it subtext to use a theater okay. term, <laughs> but it's the idea of, um, everything is so literal yeah all the time sure. so we do a script analysis and you ask them okay so what's happening in this scene and they will give you a breakdown of exactly you know they'll regurgitate the scene for you but right. they're not really digging underneath um and it's interesting and i've done a lot of reflecting on it i think part of it is you know, this teaching to the test kind right. of mentality that we ingrain where there's a right and there's a wrong answer and it's you bubble in the right one or you bubble in the wrong one and that's yeah. it. And what we do, so much of what we do is exploring this gray area that lives in between the bubbles. It's in the yeah. negative space on your answer sheet. Yeah. And so getting them to really kind of see, you no, know, what's what's really going on? Yeah. You know, they're saying, how are you? But what are they really saying? Yeah. You know? So um, I think really doing as much as we can to to spark the the synapses that are occurring yeah. to help create those connections, um, and then you know objectives, which is really flipping hard, <laughs> um, and and it's just a clunky process for a long time. But those are the things I would say. One's more general, one's pretty specific. So. Yeah, the you know we just did a um, well I. And I say this to my kids because, I mean, well, I'm just sometimes ballsy with this, but I say it's a very uh, religious way to think, in my opinion, that the kids now are, um, and go with me on this roller coaster real quick because it might not make sense right at the top, but the kids are, are just regurgitating, as you said, the the text and not mm -hmm. necessarily they don't understand what they're saying. Even if even if what the, the playwright is saying is exactly what is written you know there's no subtext yeah. they're yeah. they don't realize that these words mean something so we just did every wednesday in my district or every week in my district we're doing a artist spotlight that's focusing on a bipoc or lgbtq or somebody in the industry that uh falls under a certain category that's not white male mm -hmm. um and so we i started off with august wilson who i thought you know not only will they be able to find thousands and thousands of facts about the man but it's just he's one of the most famous that falls in that category sure. and and i had kids typing in and i make them type in facts that a previous person has not already put in and i had a kid type in in the, my first class that he's an aries and so i focused on that and i said what is what does that have to do with anything or not an aries sorry a taurus we did well, this week was an aries a taurus and I said, what does that have to do with anything? And they said, well, I don't know. It's just when he was born. I said, no, let's talk about it. What is a stereotype of a Taurus? They're stubborn. Yeah. Exactly. So do you think August Wilson, maybe he didn't, but do you think he fit into that, could have fit into that stereotype and that had something to do with how he wrote and saw the world? And so we just did a deep dive and it's exactly yeah, what... Um, like, everything we're giving you is to connect for a reason. Yeah. So let's like, don't go don't go one level deep, right. you know, let's go 10 layers. Yeah. Deep. Why not? Yeah. And he, you yeah. know, biracial man, do you think that he has a different life than a fully black or fully white person? They're like, yeah, for sure he did. It's like, okay, <laughs> let's keep going. So yeah, yeah. it's, it's interesting. Awesome. Uh, so the books behind you. So, the, and I told you I was going to talk about them. So here we are. Yeah. I, yeah. I got to ask, have you read all of those? <laughs> I have read Let's see. You got lots of scripts. I'm not gonna lie. So I, I, I do. 
I just did like a giant script order on verbatim. Okay, theater. so for future reference, yeah. That are really hard to get through. <laughs> I've been trying, so not all of those are done. Okay. But I, think, I think the majority of other things up there yeah. I've read. There may be a couple. Uh, and I've retained them, but I've read them. <laughs> is there is there one or are there a couple that you go back to as comfort food? Oh, that's such a good question. I really love the play uh, Grand Concourse by Heidi Schreck, which is one that we saw at Steppenwolf. And it's just something that, you know, I think something that's hard is finding a play that has, you know, those intimate moments that have real great character development. Um, and, and that one has some really, I like the theme of it. It's wrestling with this idea of forgiveness and like the whole, I kind of consider it, I think the word you hear people talking about now is like toxic positivity, where people are like, you forgive for yourself. You know, you forgive because it frees you. And this kind of wrestles with, does it? Does it really free you? Do I have to forgive somebody? I mean, if they really do me dirty multiple times, do I have to? I don't know about that. And I, I kind of, so there are some themes in there that I really, um, I really like. I'm definitely expanding my, my personal canon and the usual canon, right? So working a lot on trying to come up with some plays and some just doing a ton of reading because I don't want to be, I don't want to just be like, Oh, look, here's a BIPOC play by a BIPOC playwright. Let's just right. do it. You know, right. really going, okay, I want to read as much as I can. Um, that's maybe not the typical fodder because there's so many incredible emerging playwrights. Um, so I've been, reading a lot of those really getting myself kind of immersed in in that work right now yeah so been a lot of reading lately so i'm gonna finish up with this um and i actually have two questions but one uh well we'll get to it uh is there something you've read um other than what you just mentioned is there something that you've read that has changed how you uh look at theater in the future and or if that makes sense is there something that that's kind of like you had an idea of what you thought was correct and then you read it and not necessarily theater but even life and then you read it and it kind of just switched you up or made you think a little deeper harder i it, it wasn't something that i read but it was a conversation that i had with someone okay. um and we were talking about and this was before March. This was actually in November of last year. And we were talking about Shakespeare and then, you know, just kind of talking about. So, okay, there's a great thing out there right now. It's uh, Laura Turchi and Ayana Thompson. And I'm going to butcher the name of their book, but they did a book that was kind of geared towards um, approaching Shakespeare with high school students and it was a great book and it came out, I don't know, maybe a decade ago and they gave a talk and they were like, you know what? That doesn't apply anymore. <laughs> we have to rewrite, reconfigure everything because Gen Z is changing the game completely. And they. Teaching, they teaching Shakespeare mind. with a purpose. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's what it is. And they, their, their conversation over this just kind of blew my mind talking about how Gen Z, they're, they're all about influence and they, they are not all about affluence. If you look at our workforce right now, we have five generations of people working together, you know, and how that's affecting everything. Um, and, and so just putting, spinning everything on its head this idea and they said if if we were teaching Shakespeare right now you have to acknowledge that he was not a great dude <laughs> you have to talk about the themes the things he did who he was as a man and you've got to you, you can't just put him on a pedestal and be like he is Shakespeare 
He is the almighty, omnipotent Shakespeare. And so he's all of these things. And they said, you know, what we're seeing happen right now across the nation, statues are coming down that those movements are largely happening because of young people. Schools are being renamed because young people are saying, I don't want to be affiliated with Robert E. Lee High School. Like, I don't want that. I don't want that, right? They are demanding. They're very aware of identity and the importance of your own personal detailed identity in moving through this world, which is why we're seeing the expansion of different vernacular and, and the ways to approach and speak about different populations. And so to get back to your question, one of the things they said was, if I was teaching something on Shakespeare right now, I would start off by asking them, is Shakespeare a statue? And if he is, is he a statue that needs to come down? Right. Or is there value in the work and understanding that text, you know, right. where we can, we can look at that separately and we can approach that and recognize that has complexity and value, but the man himself is, yeah. is not all of those things. Yeah. So I thought that was a really cool. It's a, it sounds like a weird word of advice, but it's like you tell your kids live your life to eventually be a statue. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> right. or a statue that doesn't eventually come to, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Really. Yeah. Live your life so that you can be a statue. Uh, well, Jessica, I want to try something. This is new for you and I may or may not keep this in. We'll see how well it goes. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, what I want to do is I want to put the pressure on my interview, uh, interview ease of naming the next person that I should interview. This is this is the way to do it, right? I'm just my brain is exploding right well, now with all of these names, and I don't know who all. You, you can them, name a couple of people. I'll name. I'll write them down, because because I'm tired of Stuart Savage uh, asking me for a return on his on his suggestions. You know, the guy wants oh, just an, an exorbitant amount of money back, and. I just, I just can't with him anymore. So, uh, that's all a joke. I mean, but he has given me quite a few names of oh people God. to interview. My name.